On the very first episode of the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm talking to Associate Professor Pete Maliaris from Monash University about the fundamental knowledge and skills that you need as a clinician, physiotherapist or physiotherapy student to help people with tendinopathy. Welcome to the Physio Foundations podcast. It's a podcast about the foundational, fundamental knowledge and skills that underpin expert clinical practice. I'm your host, Luke Perriton, and on the very first episode of the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm delighted to announce my guest is Associate Professor Peter Maliaris from Monash University. So Pete is a colleague and friend of mine at the university. We work together on various research projects, I'm supervising research students and in teaching. Well, he's the perfect guest to have on first for the podcast. So, Pete, thank you and welcome. Thank you very much, Luke. Thanks for having me. Great. So um, let's just go into your um, current position first. Just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you currently do and your origin or your foundation story. What makes you, you're an expert uh, in tendinopathy as a clinician and a researcher but you didn't get there overnight. What, what's your foundations? Yeah, I um, so basically I pretty much uh, went into research quite early in my career and uh, uh, was fortunate enough to work with some good people. Um, tendinopathy space is quite small, so once you start researching that area, you meet a lot of people very quickly and uh, working with all these people that you read their papers and you sort of um, admire their work was a really good experience. And that was during my PhD. Um, uh, and then that sort of mushroomed on to going overseas to the UK. And I think in terms of, I mean, doing a PhD is one thing, but making it into a passion post PhD is a different thing. And that's probably the thing I want to highlight. You, you then have to do almost harder work post PhD to um, to focus on that area, to learn as much as you can uh, via the literature, but also work with the best people in that field. And so I went overseas and did a postdoc with uh, people who were uh, doing a lot of tendon research um, and uh, like Professor Nicola Mafuli and Dylan Morrissey and that turned out to be probably the, I would say, the um, the turning point in terms of uh, learning for me. And um, uh, that concentrated time, five years in the UK, I worked in tendon clinics where we would just see tendon patients with a whole group of experts from different fields. And that that experience was probably the thing that uh, I learned the most from and that I sort of then um, was able to uh, go into the sort of career that I have now. Mm. We're gonna, in this episode, we'll go into the knowledge and skills that uh, that you really need as your foundation if you're going to be helping people with tendinopathy. But it is important for the listeners to know who they're listening to and you know where you've come from. So let's get into the specifics here. So what are some of the most, you know, all that learning you've done over many years, what are some of the most important things that physios and physio students or other musculoskeletal clinicians should know about or think about as they go into the clinic and they're going to manage help someone manage a tendinopathy um it's a really good question it's a and it's one that sort of stop it makes you stop and think because it's um 
it, in one way, you can sort of think about it as uh, a lot of musculoskeletal conditions that we treat are treated with similar principles. So you, you treat them with um, <clears throat> trying to uh, educate people and empower them about the condition, how to manage it, and trying to lay their fears and then try and um, <clears throat> set them on the right path with activity and with exercise. Uh, so tendinopathy, I guess the principles are very, very similar. But um, uh, so I guess getting the basics right is the first probably lesson for a new grad. I'm just trying to think back. When I was a new grad, I remember distinctly working in a practice in Northcote in, a, in Melbourne, and um, I distinctly remember sitting in a room and doing ultrasound uh, therapeutic ultrasound as well as uh, frictions for tennis elbow and I've got this visual memory of it that just um, you know haunts me I guess you could say now I, I, I told the Monash Physio students <laughs> recently the same story yeah. and yeah it, 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 I, there was some ice involved as well I think and um, advice to do nothing and rest I think there was all sorts of wrong things happening 20, exactly. 25 years ago that's right and it takes me back to like the way my thought processes were at that point, um, it was basically very uncritical. And I, I would think, okay, so I've, I've been taught in second year or whenever it was, you've got to do this protocol, the Statish and Kerwin protocol it was then, you've got to start with the, this stretching, you've got to go into this, um, then you've got to go into this eccentric exercise, then you've got to finish off with ice and frictions or whatever it was. It's probably not right. but um, And I just uncritically just followed that like a robot. Um, and uh, then I, th and, and that takes me back to sort of my thought processes. So I guess, I guess for a new graduate, uh, the the think about um, think about the basic basic principles that you're trying to achieve with a patient who's got a tendon problem, and really what you're trying to achieve is you're trying to. Um, you try to make them feel more comfortable in terms of their pain, and that will come from talking to them largely to allay their fears. That's probably the most important thing, um, allaying their fears, uh, uh, setting their expectations, allowing them to understand what they should and shouldn't do. If you're doing that, you're doing, you're doing a fairly good job already, much better than what I was doing at that Northgate Clinic there um, 25 years ago. Uh, but then... If you can go beyond that and start thinking about exercise uh, and doing some exercise that's going to load the tendon as well, um, uh, from a, you know starting off from a uh, point of view of trying to set something that's going to be suitable for them based on how much uh, symptoms they have in their function, I think those basic principles, if you're applying them in a critical way, with uh, with with a sort of uh, idea of who you, who is in front of you rather than a uh, a cookie cutter sort of way. I think that is, um, you know, really a good starting point um, for for new grades. So be critical of what you're you're doing and what you're thinking and your thought processes, and and always bring yourself back to those basic principles. And it's interesting that you started with mm. education and um, laying fear, mm. and then you started talking about exercise, mm. and then you've already steered us away from. Uh, the dinosaur days of you know icing and doing transverse frictions and ultrasound and things, and you know the, all the listeners know that that's um, mm. what used to happen, and that the tendinopathy research field has moved along so much. But mm. it is interesting to reflect on you know where we've come from, 
Yeah. And um, definitely. They were, they were very, they, they, they were, in a way, those days were simple because you just had your recipe, you go into your clinic, you, you, you apply your recipe, you do your stuff, and you go out and you don't have to think too much. But um, also, there was a whole stack of confusion because you're thinking, am I, you're always thinking, am I doing the right thing? Why am I doing this thing that I'm doing? Um, so, thinking critically, I think, and deeply about everything you're doing um, is, is really important. Mm. Well, let's take a step back and talk about why people get tendinopathy because that's going to be fundamental to the treatment and the assessment and the treatment you do. So what are some of the causes and contributing factors? I know that's you know quite heterogeneous and there's lots of different causes and contributing factors, but generally. Um, the, the, probably the biggest one is just activities and change in activity. So uh, people that... Um, if we talk about lower limb uh, starting to use your arm more, say at work or overhead activity, um, repetitive activities like sport, like tennis or other things um, can bring on a tendon problem. Uh, with a lower limb, it tends to be um, repetitive stretch short and cycle activities. So it could be things like walking or could be things like um, uh, running, uh, any sport activities. So, I think the starting point from a point of view of understanding a tendon patient is trying to understand how much loading they, they're doing in those in those sort of domains. So you've got to understand how much uh, type, what type of load and how much they're putting into their tendon. Um, and then you've got to, that's, that's your starting point for then uh, thinking about, do I need to be thinking about reducing their load or increasing their load as part of treatment. But then there's other risk factors like um, the person's general health. So they might be, might be that they are a smoker and they've got diabetes. So that could increase their risk of, uh, and also make it a poorer prognosis for getting better. Uh, it could be that they've got, they're, they're a female in menopausal type period, um, which is gonna be also uh, possibly a, a risk factor. Um, the other major ones, so metabolic disease, uh, metabol uh, hormonal changes in females, um, they're really the major ones. They're really the major ones. There's not a lot of evidence that, say, if you've got really poor biomechanics or you've got uh, really poor strength, that that's going to be a risk factor. There is some, but there's not a lot of evidence for those, and it's quite variable, and I think that's why the evidence is not clear because for some people strength might be a risk factor for other people it may not be at all so it's it's quite variable and the, we don't really have a lot of certainty on those but again go for the major ones go for load and really explore that and and then look at any major general health issues as well so what i'm getting from that is the lesson here is to obviously we're not here to tell clinicians and uh, physio students how to do an initial interview and to structure that, but just to, just perhaps to think from the perspective of, of an expert, how we can look more broadly at the problem and um, the bigger picture as well and think about the person. So, you know, if, if we get to the end of our initial interview here and with considered contributing factors and causes and, you know, perhaps not as strong a links between some of the, so say strength, for example, and um, as a contributing factor, what about when we get into a physical examination? 
and look at impairments. So what are the main impairments you see when you measure things? Mm. Um, so the main one is that people present with pain. So pain is the biggest one. So we need to be measuring that in a in a in a in a way that we can then sort of look at how it's changing over time. So um, get into the habit of assessing pain scales. So it could be a how much how much pain what's the worst pain you've had over the last seven days. Or how much pain do you have with a hot test or with a uh, squeeze, a maximal grip test or, you know, those types of things. Um, So pain is a really important one. But the other impairments are things like um, generally a lot of people will have motor impairments. So they'll have um, uh, reduced strength on their affected side Um, and, uh, Again, you want to get into the habit of trying to measure those. Uh, And it could be that you just do uh, tests like repeated tests that, you know, will give you some idea of their endurance. Or it could be that you've got a dynamometer, handheld dynamometer, and you can measure them that way. Um, We're getting more and more, I guess, high tech with how we measure things. And um, that's very, very important. So as a new grad, you want to be thinking, What's what's and again, critically think through things. How do you know that someone has got a strength impairment? Um, Is is the test that you've done reliable enough and valid enough to be able to tell you that? Um, And if you've just done a a sort of uh, what do you call it a maximal sort of hand pressure resisted, you know, resisted with your hand. Manual muscle uh, test. Manual yeah. muscle test, thank you. It may not be uh, reliable or valid enough to actually tell you if there's a difference or if this person is weak. Um, so that's important. You don't want to fall into the trap of um, something like a confirmation bias type uh, trap where you're thinking this person's got a tendon problem, <clears throat> they're likely to be weak, um, I'll test my, I'll do a manual muscle test. Oh, look, they are weak. Um, that's, you don't want to fall into that trap because that, that's, a, that's a classic uh, confirmation bias trap where you're not using the right tools. Not everyone with tendinopathy will be weak. Not, every, not all of them will need a strength program in inverted commas. Um, so it's, uh, I think it is important to, to, to think about, you know, how are you arriving at your answers? And the same thing with diagnosis. How do you, how, what, what gives you certainty that that diagnosis is the right one? Um, how, what gives you certainty that those impairments um, are reliable? Um, so those, those things are important to think through. So talking really generally about upper limb and lower limb tendinopathy, but just generally, so we've talked about pain, thinking about pain during a functional task, for example, a heel raise or a, a grip strength test, pain in the last seven days, and then also measuring strength. You know, consider ways of objectively measuring strength and then thinking about how much error is likely to be in that measurement of strength. Uh, anything else that you would be in the foundational, fundamental management of tendinopathy in terms of measurement, things that you have to track at the impairment level, hmm. or at the functional and participation level later, 
Um, pain and strength are big ones. Yeah, pain and strength. You can uh, talk about function if you like as well or anything else that you'd measure. I, with measurement, basically as much as you can. Um, I think that's what is going to separate us apart in the future. Um, people that measure and people that don't measure because it's becoming much easier to measure things in the clinic. So in the clinic now, um, with an Achilles patient, which is the cohort that I specialize in, uh, I'm able to measure maximal voluntary contractions, rate of force development, even hopping type um, metrics, like looking at how they how they hop uh, from a point of view of how they how efficient they are with hopping. Um, and you're able to do these relatively cheaply. So all these things are possible. Um, now that might not be something that every clinic wants to or can set up, but uh, you can certainly look at uh, the literature and find uh, ro- robust, reliable, and as valid as you can within your budget and within your clinic scope um, measures that you can use for strength and for functional things like hopping. Um, so, for example, hopping, you can use apps that are pretty cheap that allow you to measure things like um, even vertical stiffness and hopping heights and things like that. So uh, so these things, these functional things, uh, again, get into the habit of measuring as much as you possibly can. Uh, it's good for your own learning. Um, you might be surprised sometimes to find that, that the deficits that you expect are not there, but it's also good for the patient to, as a motivator if the deficits are there and you're then setting them a program they have to, sit, they have to stick to and you're sort of, um, you've got the evidence that you're not guessing, you're not saying, oh, uh, I think you're weak, therefore I'm going to give you this. You're saying, I know you're weak because we've got this data that's telling us you're weak. I'm going to set you this. And then we're going to look at this number going from here to here in the next few weeks. Goal setting and motivation. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. And that makes a huge difference for patients and also for your own enjoyment. Um, I find it so satisfying to be able to say to patients, uh, this is your, this is what I've clocked you at, and this is what I want you to be at, and this is this is how we're going to achieve it. So it's a, it's really satisfying if you can do that. Mm. And look, a key point you made earlier was not everyone with tendinopathy will be weak, and they may not need a strengthening program. Mm-hmm. So looking beyond the things that you think will be a problem, and yep. actually measuring, yeah. and you know, yeah. getting lots of data points for. Mm hundreds, even thousands of patients over your career and building mm. your own bank of clinical evidence. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that is that is really what it's about because if you can have then the discussion about uh, what do trials tell us. Trials tell us about the average person. So this is how the average person is going to respond to an exercise intervention. But it doesn't tell you about your patient in front of you and it may be that your patient in front of you uh, because of your experience you you can start to think they they maybe need something different uh, not not so much not so much this we know that yes exercise works for the average person but this guy is really strong has tried it all before has failed maybe i'm going to give him something different so it's a, it's it's a, it's a really good way to think that you're working in an environment where you can just gather evidence from every single patient you see and you can use that to then inform all the other patients you see in the way that you treat back to your original point about being critical 
mm. and thinking about what you're doing rather than just applying recipes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, we're going to wrap up part one in a minute. We've got part two. We're going to record part two and release part two separately of this chat. And the structure for this podcast is going to be the foundational, fundamental skills and knowledge. And then we'll go into a part two with guests where we're going to talk about in more advanced scope, progressing your knowledge. So look, we'll save the, some more advanced concepts for the next part of our chat. But in terms of wrapping this one up, prognosis, generally, everyone has a different prognosis and it's, mm. there's not one answer for this. But generally, who goes well with tendinopathy? Who takes longer? Is there anything that uh, triggers you to think, okay, there's a bit of a red flag or mm. potentially uh, we're, we're going to have a slower prognosis? They may not respond to treatment. Uh, perhaps a double barrel question here. Um, there, there could be pitfalls that clinicians could look out for in terms of prognosis of people who aren't going to respond to treatment. Mm. What do you think? I think that um, it's it's probably it's probably true to say that um, the classic variables that people think about for prognosis, like oh, you've had it for. 10 years or you've, you know, duration of symptoms or um, even things like BMI, they don't really relate to prognosis, especially if you look at them in the research. There, there may be some evidence that they're prognostic, but not, not a lot. Um, the variables that haven't really been investigated a lot are some of the psychos psychosocial variables. Um, so it's getting into sort of determinants of health type sort of area what uh, impact do these psychological variables have? Um, and I think they do have an impact. So if you're, if you're much more attentive and stressed about your pain, it's going to have an impact most likely on what you do. And that those sorts of relationships are starting to be untangled now. But we're, we're sort of a long way off really understanding the impact of those variables. But they have been... Uh, probably not studied enough up until now, and we're starting to get more evidence. So, so those, those are the ones that I look at a lot. But you you must look at you know everything like strength. Again, it's that sort of individual approach. Um, is are they really weak? Is that going to be a problem for them getting back? Are they really stressed and anxious and fearful? Um, are they really uh, unhealthy and overweight? And is that going to be a problem? So, they're the sort of domains that you might consider very multifactorial, very individualized for different people, I think. But as long as you're critical and you're thinking to yourself, you know, what are the potential factors for this person in front of me that might just think about it on the logical level, logically, uh, what if, if this person was going to do an exercise program, what factors would predict them not having a good recovery or getting stronger? And you could think about it the same with pain. Pain is much more complex than just getting stronger, but uh, what is going to impact their pain not improving? Could it be some of these factors as well? So, um, yeah, that's sort of the way that I would um, uh, think about it. You know, we've come a long way from icing and stretching and transverse frictions of tendonitis to, um, you know, biopsychosocial management of tendinopathy. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you've it mm -hmm. taken us really nicely on not just the current, you know, thinking of an expert and the foundations of your expertise and your thinking, but also on a bit of a journey of why current practice is as it is. So mm -hmm. 
Thanks, Pete. Really, really interesting. Really nice um, episode one. Thanks for helping me break the ice. I can come back and uh, and and do a full episode on frictions and and uh, if you like. Yeah, good. <laughs> good. We'll we'll do that just for sh- to be shock jocks, just to get people <laughs> listening, and then we'll go back to the the stuff that works. But sounds good. All right, so and uh, I'm going to be putting your um, details where to find you on social media, etc., all in the show notes. So we won't say them here, and we'll wrap up at the end of the second episode, which is progressing your skills and knowledge, part two. So stay tuned, listen to part two with Pete. For now, thank you very much, Pete. Thank you very much, Luke. Thanks. Appreciate it.